In this episode, Jenny Stone and Katie Singer, both partners at RBP, will be discussing the issues surrounding taking on or becoming a non-clinical partner in a GP practice. Accountancy on Prescription by RBP, one of the leading firms of medical specialist accountants. We know what you find tough, but don't you worry, as we know our stuff. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Accountancy on Prescription. Today, I'm joined by Jenny Stone. Hi, Katie. Hiya. And we're going to be discussing non-GP partners joining your practice, something we get asked about all the time. So we thought this actually might be a really good discussion point for us. And I think, Jen, were you saying you were doing a, a projection just this week? Yeah, I literally had exactly that email asking me, we're thinking of making their practice manager a partner and basically what do they need to know? So yeah, we get asked it quite a bit. So we thought we'd just use today as an opportunity to discuss a couple of issues that might arise, things you'll want to consider, whether you yourself are a non-GP partner listening or you're a GP who has a partnership who thinks, you know, our practice manager or nurse, you know, it's not just practice managers, although this is generally more towards practice managers, you know, really good, really dynamic. And we think we'd like to offer them, you know, something, a level up, if you like, and bring them onto partnership. So these are just the things that we think are definitely discussion points and should be considered. So the first thing we're always asked about is how do we work out what their profit share should be? Yeah, no, absolutely, Katie. And and this is exactly what I got asked with my client who was looking at making their practice manager a partner. She's obviously on the payroll, gets a salary, and they then want to know, well, how do we then share as profit? So practice manager or nurse, you're obviously going to be a partner. So as partners, you get a share of profits. Now, what some practices, and I would say that this isn't really what people do so much now, but what I used to see is some practices would go, we're going to give the practice manager, I'm assuming, let's talk about it as a practice manager, as a partner, but this same principle applies to nurses. They would say, we're going to give them a fixed share of profits, similar to maybe their salary they're on, and then a small percentage of profits. Maybe they might say, we're going to give them 5% of actual profits. The only thing I feel with that is it's not really that different to having a salary on the pay role and getting a bonus based on a percentage of profits. You know, you're looking to try and incentivize your practice manager or your nurse about becoming a partner, being part of the business. So I think generally what we tend to see is most GPs share profits based on sessions worked. So you kind of try and work out, well, what the practice manager or nurse does, how many sessions is it equivalent to? So For example, I've got a practice where both the practice manager and the nurse are a partner and they work on eight sessions being full time and they get 50% parity, i.e. they get a profit share based on four sessions. I've got another practice where the practice manager is a partner and she gets a share based on 70% of eight sessions. So she'll get a share of profits based on 5.6 sessions. So By doing that, you're making them more involved in the business. They're getting a share of profits just like the GP partners. Now, how you decide what percentage to set that at, you know, what parity percentage you want to set it at, is really going to depend on your profits of your practice. So you can have two practice managers, but we know, Katie, that practice profits for even the same size practice vary massively. So if you're a high earning practice, you might be like, well, actually, if we give them 50%, 
of eight sessions, so four session profit share. That may come out as a number that you think is reasonable for your practice manager. But then another practice, 50% may be too low because they're lower profit share. So we then think when I'm talking to practices about non-clinical partners, I always talk about we need to do some numbers. Let's do some projections to look at what it means. Because I think don't know how you feel, Katie, but GP partners, they just don't know. And actually what they need to see is numbers, i.e. what would the practice manager get as a profit share and what's the impact for them on their drawings as well? Yeah. And it's not a one size fits all. I think that's something to take away because sometimes I'm just called up and asked, what should their profit share be? I.e. should it be 50% of a full time? And it's like, well, it depends. And like you, I have got a number of different practices with different sharing arrangements. I've got some practices where their PMs are actually on full parity, you know, i.e. the same as the GP partners, because that's the ethos of the practice and that's how they value the practice manager and and they believe that they are doing the equivalent work and therefore they get the same level. So it is going to be, like Jenny says, we've got to run the numbers to see how it's going to work. One thing actually to take away, Jenny did mention there about doing maybe like a, a fixed share and then a percentage of profits. Just one thing to consider is superannuation when you become a partner and you're looking at a profit share. So say you're looking at this from the perspective of you are the practice manager listening today and you're given a projection prepared by us and it says your profit's going to be 65,000. And you think, oh, okay, my salary at the moment is 65,000. So I'm going to be earning about the same, but you're not. Because when you become a partner, especially if you're in the NHS pension scheme, obviously this actually doesn't apply if you're not in the scheme, but I'd say what 95% yeah, most of people, people are in the NHS pension scheme. Yeah. So if you're in the NHS pension scheme, you have to consider that when you become a partner, as you're no longer an employee, you have to pay not only your employees' contributions, which you're currently used to paying, you also start paying, in inverted commas, paying your own employer's contributions. So if you're just seeing a number on paper and you think, oh, that's okay, that's the same salary as I currently earn the bottom line will actually be less when you take out your employer's pension contribution. So just be aware. And again, for those partners in practice who are looking at the projections to incentivize that individual, it needs to be an amount that's increased on top of their current salary. Otherwise, it's not going to be financially beneficial. That's not to say that if they do a build up over a few years, and many of you listening will know if you, when you joined your practice, you built up over a number of years, that's quite common. It might be in the first year or two, their percentage is slightly lower, their earnings are slightly lower, but as long as there is scope for them to increase over time, I think that's really where you need to be considering. Yeah. And I would say also, if any practices are looking at, say, doing a fixed share, is with that fixed share, it's got to be increased to cover the employer's pension contribution. So obviously, when a practice manager or nurse is on the payroll, the practice pays, the cost to, I suppose, the GP partners is their employer's pension and employer's national insurance. So if you were looking at doing a fixed share, you've got to bump that fixed share up to take account of the employer's pension. And the only thing maybe, Katie, just to touch on is that obviously employees on the payroll, the practice has the cost of employers' national insurance. Now, if they become a partner, that cost is effectively saved because they are a partner, they're not paying employers' national insurance. So, you know, when you're looking at numbers, you've got to factor in that that is obviously a saving as well. And when we're looking at the bottom line, often we're asked about drawings. So it's important to make sure that your practice manager or nurse or whoever's going to be joining can afford to live, you know, off the drawings that we're projecting that they're going to be earning, which I guess leads us on to our next point, which is looking at does a practice manager or a nurse partner joining a practice need to build up 
working capital? And the answer is yes, basically. You do need to ensure that all partners, because you know it's a partnership, it's got to be fair and reasonable, have an element of working capital. And I'm sure Jenny will agree, we generally recommend that working capital is built up in your profit sharing ratios. So if you're a practice manager partner and you're the equivalent of half a full-time GP, you may need to build up to £20,000 working capital, whereas your GP counterpart working eight sessions might be £40,000. So, you know, you are going to be expected to build up that working capital. There are a number of different ways you can do it. The first one and the one that is really handy for GPs and actually would be relevant for nurses, but unfortunately isn't for PM partners is the new to partnership scheme, which is currently running at the moment. So for those of you lucky enough to have been in receipt of it, you'll know that it really helps to going towards your working capital because it's a lump sum that is deposited into the practice. It's taxable, but it's not pensionable. And therefore, effectively, it's a cash injection. Although I must caveat the letter that you get when you receive the money says, please pay this to the person or the individual within seven working days, which we disagree with. We think it should be left in the practice. Yeah. So if you are a potential nurse partner or another clinician partner listening, you potentially at this current moment in time will still be able to tap into and receive that funding. So that will definitely help. I had a nurse partner that joined and she was able to get the new to partnership payment. And all I'd add, Katie, is the new to partnership scheme is supposed to be ending sort of next March. And I haven't heard any more about it being extended. So it was available. First came out and said it would be up to March 22 and they extended it for another year. So again, and this is for nurses, practice managers, like Katie has said, unfortunately cannot get the new to partnership payment. Payment. But if you've got a practice nurse that you're thinking of making a partner, then you need to be thinking about doing that before the 1st of April 23 so they can tap into this money. Another option, and, and I would say this is, again, less common in this current day and age, particularly in this rather volatile climate we're living in is to deposit a lump sum. So, you know, many of you listening who have been GP partners for a very long time may remember the days where you would actually deposit a lump sum of cash, maybe £20,000 as a lump sum into the practice as your working capital. Very, very difficult for individuals to save that kind of money up at the moment outside of the practice, especially if you're, you know, newer or, or younger or coming in slowly into partnership. So the option could be to take out a loan. It's not one that we actually recommend or we very regularly see in practice. But if you were to do that, you can take out a loan. Any interest that you pay on that loan would be classed as you know, a business loan and you could claim the interest as tax deductible. But I'm not going to dwell on this one too much because I actually don't really think it's that relevant. No, no I think most people don't. They? If they've not got the new to partnership payment, they tend to underdraw, i.e. you're taking less drawings for maybe one, two years so that you're building up your working capital to the required amount. And again, just like we talk about profits, not one size fits all. It's exactly the same with working capital. So the required working capital in each practice will vary depending on what the practice wants to leave in as cash flow. So if you're becoming a partner, you need to obviously be asking, you know, what of my working capital? Also, how many years do you build it up? So I've got some practices that'll be like, no, it's got to be done within a year. Others will be much more flexible and say, no, you can take sort of two, three years to build up that money. I would say from what I generally see, 
my recommendation for most individuals, and this is across the board, this whether you're a GP or a nurse or a practice manager, would be to reduce your monthly drawing by around £500. Now, obviously, if you're a very low session rate, if you were, say, only a two-session worker, then that might be quite difficult because it's a small amount. But in general, most individuals that we do projections for, they can afford, in inverted commas, to reduce their drawings by £500 a month. Therefore, in theory, your current account or your working capital builds up by six grand in the first year, 12 grand in the second. By the end of the third year, you should have around 18,000. Now, in reality, Jenny, maybe you're the same as me. Our drawings projections generally are on the side of caution. By the time we get to the end of the financial year, actually profits are slightly higher. There is actually more working capital available. So usually I would say if you do a conservative reduction of your drawings of 500 pounds for the first one to three years, you should be at working capital and then you can increase those drawings back up. But just remember that it is temporary. So yes, it will be cash flow for you as an individual because you're going to be taking home potentially less than you were, the money is there. It's just sitting in the practice bank account. It's just not sitting in your own bank account. It's the only difference. Okay. So we have touched upon it briefly already, but going back to the point about superannuation or pension contributions, something to really consider. And one of the most common pitfalls, and I must stress, this is not usually the fault of the practice or any individual concerned, is that you must ensure you inform PCSE and you do this via the online PCSE portal. Am I correct there? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think one of the changes that will happen is obviously when practice manager or nurse, you're on the payroll, your pension contributions all get deducted at source. And then obviously the practice pay them directly over to the NHS pension agency. As you're going to become a partner, your pension is going to be dealt with in the same way as a GP. So that means you should then have superan being deducted on your PCSE monthly statement. So as Katie was saying, your practice manager or nurse partner needs to be put onto PCSE's portal. So you need to set them up as a non-clinical partner. And then Katie, what I tend to say to practices is as soon as you've kind of informed PCSE that you've got non-clinical partner joining, that you actually check the monthly PCSE statements. They need to be seeing their name with their superannuation being deducted. And what you'll also need to do is obviously give PCSE, it's exactly like a GP partner, you need to give them an estimate of your pensionable profit. So again, if we're doing projections for our clients to give them an idea of what the profit share will be, we can then obviously give you an idea of what pensionable pay will be. And then what should happen, PCSE should be taking pension deductions every month, just like they do for the GP partners. But it's really important. PCSE seem to struggle with non-GP partners. They can't get their head around it, I think. So just really make sure that you've done all the process correctly and you are looking at the monthly statements and superannuation is being deducted for the non-clinical partners. And if it's not, then again, contact PCSE, raise a case. Yeah. And to stress, this can take a while. I mean, many of you listening will know that you've had GP partners or salary GPs or anybody really leave, join, And it takes months, I mean, sadly, sometimes years for the individual to be added on or taken off. But the reason why it's so important that you get this updated as soon as you can is when you make a superannuation contribution, when it goes out of the practice pot or out of the global sum or however you want to say it, and goes over to the pensions agency, that physical deduction, you can put it on your tax return so you get tax relief. If, let's say, you join as a partner in April, 
And the whole way through the financial year, they haven't deducted any superannuation for you. There's going to be nothing technically to declare on your tax return. So you're going to lose that tax relief to reduce your taxable profits by. So it's really imperative if you're listening today and you are going to be joining a practice that you get on top of it because you want to make sure you can get your tax relief as soon as possible. And this has happened before with multiple partners that I've dealt with. It's taken a couple of years to get their contributions deducted. Then all of a sudden, three years worth of contributions have gone in one go. So they've had big tax bill followed by big tax bill followed by a ridiculously small tax bill. And they don't understand necessarily why, because it's a bit complicated. And then of course, the following year, a massive tax bill again. And it's such a horrible position to be in. You want to try and keep your income, your affairs, your your tax payments as steady as possible. So that's another hopeful incentive to really to be chasing PCSE if they're not. And it is absolutely, it's so important to make sure that that superannuation is being deducted because as Katie says, it means you pay a bigger tax. But when we're doing practice accounts, we're going to withhold from your money what should be paid over to PCSE in superannuation. So you don't have that money, but you're going to then be paying out bigger tax bills. So it has massive Mm. cash flow implications. So Mm. yeah, I think both of us can't stress enough the importance of making sure PCSE have been correctly informed that you're a partner and that you are checking every month for those superannuation deductions. And to be honest, I'm sort of saying to practices now, raise a case with PCSE. If you're not getting anywhere, raise a complaint with PCSE because that seems to be the only way that we can get things resolved. Yeah, exactly. And something else I want to mention to do with pension under the same umbrella is something to consider. Again, this isn't relevant for GP partners, only relevant for nurse or practice manager partners joining a practice, or actually, to be honest, is relevant for practice managers and nurses on the payroll too, is just to be aware of something called the final pay control charge. It's a bit niche, but I'll just mention it briefly anyway. This is effectively a charge that the pensions agency could put on an individual if in their last three years of service before they retire, there is a significant increase in their pensionable income. Because those individuals, correct me, Jenny, if I do say this wrong, those individuals have a final pay salary scheme and therefore it's dependent on their last three years of salary, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And all I would say is it's not on the individual, it's actually on the employer. So basically, pensions agency bought this in. I think it was really to stop people manipulating maybe kind of husband-wife kind of partnerships and manipulating salary figures so that they get this massive pension at the end of retirement. So what they do is they look back at the last three years and they go, has this person had an increase in pay or profits, which means... Because non-GPs are officers for pension purposes, which means the 95 scheme, they get a final pay pension. So their pension's based on their final salary. It's trying to prevent them from bumping that up in the last three years. So Katie, I had a case where I had a nurse partner and they were a PMS practice. They thought they were going to be losing some significant PMS funding. So they made certain changes to their practice to kind of cut costs, to try and kind of maintain profits. But actually, they didn't lose the PMS funding. So what happened was, is they had a massive increase in profits. And then the nurse retired, I think, a year later. Now, what they got is she got issued with a final, and and we'd done some estimates for her, so she knew this was coming. They issued her with a final pay control charge of £200,000 because basically her profits had bumped up 
which meant she'd had a much bigger pension and a much bigger lump sum. So she was saying to me, well, my lump sum and that is just all going on this final pay control charge. So although it's a charge that the employer pays, obviously in their partnership, they had agreed that, you know, it was her that was getting the pension benefits. So she would be paying the final pay control. But they did review all of this, Katie, because it was unfair. You know, I think the intention of what it was trying to stop was then suddenly penalising people who got genuine increases in pensionable pay. So they did review all of this to say, I think, Katie, you're probably better to talk about it than me. But what they've done is they've reviewed to actually look at this. There's, it's complicated, but there's an allowable amount they allow your pay to go up by. But actually what they came in and said is that, if you haven't changed your working pattern or sessions that you're working and your profits have gone up simply because, you know, so in my example, it wasn't that she'd been allocated more profits. It was simply that their profits of the practice had increased. So there was nothing she could have done about that. And they've basically recognized that. And my particular client, because it fell in the period that they reviewed, they agreed to say she was being unfairly penalised with a final pay control charge because the profits of the practice had genuinely gone up. She hadn't changed her working pattern. Everything was exactly the same. And actually, she got that money back. They did actually agree that it shouldn't have been a final pay control charge. A similar example I've got is a practice where there were four GP partners and one practice manager partner. So they were sharing the profits between five individuals. Then two GP partners left. The practice manager didn't change her working hours in any way. But just by the way profits work, if you replace GP partners, and as we know, if you're listening, GP partners in general do earn considerably more than salary GPs in general. If you replace two exiting partners with two salary GPs, by nature, the profits are going to increase for those three remaining individuals. So the profits went up for the two remaining GPs and the practice manager partner. So that individual had not changed their working time at all. And so the charge was calculated, but was never actually put upon the individual because their increase in profits was by doing nothing. It, you know, it wasn't their fault. So it's just something to be aware of. But this charge does apply to staff as well. So just be aware of it. I mean, we will touch upon partnership agreements later. But yeah, just make sure that it is clear who is liable for that charge should there be one. Although yeah. in, I would say probably if they don't change the rules, who knows what's going to happen? 90% of the time, if you can argue that your working time hasn't increased and very often people wind down towards their retirement anyway, then you can argue that the charge was just there because profits naturally increased. Yeah, just to be clear that it is so with my particular client, it was the practice that got invoiced for the final pay control charge. So it is on the employer. So actually, although the partner, the non-clinical partner had actually left, it was the practice that got the invoice for the 200000 Obviously, they knew and had agreements still with the partner that she was going to pay it, but it is invoiced to the partnership. So I think your point, Katie, about it's got to be very clear in partnership agreements that actually, it would, you know, if there is this, this charge, it would be that individual partner that would be liable. Mm. So yeah, I just wanted to bring that up. Okay. So now I just want to discuss effectively what happens when the individual in question, the, the practice manager or the nurse actually becomes a partner, what they need to do or make sure they do. So the first thing, and this is really important, is that individual needs to come off the payroll. So 99% of the time, the individual will be joining a partner in the practice they currently work at. So they need to cease being on the payroll 
say normally it's at the month end before they then join the partnership as a partner from the first day of the following month. And from that point onwards, they'll be taking drawings. And again, if you did want to know what their drawings potentially should be, you can just ask us and we could prepare some projections. Secondly, they need to make sure they notify HMRC that they're now self-employed. I believe there's a form, isn't there, Jen? Remind me. Yeah, they need to complete, or, or to be honest, just speak to the accountant. There's an SA 401 just to notify that they are now a partner in the practice. So that needs to be completed. And then that will get the partner registered for self-employed. So it does mean, you know, if you're an employee and you've been on the payroll, you probably haven't needed to do tax returns. So obviously, once you become self-employed, you're going to need to complete and file a tax return. Although, to be honest, you'll ask the practice accountant to do the return. And then obviously, depending on the practice and whether they hold back the tax or whether you take your drawings gross, you are obviously going to have to save for your future tax liabilities. So if you are taking gross drawings, this is going to be different to when you were taking a net salary. So you would then have to put aside your money for your tax liabilities. And we normally say save about third of your income for tax. Yeah. And also keep a note of any personal expenses. So when you were employed or are currently employed, you can't really claim any professional expenses other than for nurses subscriptions. But when you become self-employed, that claim gets a lot larger and you can put down use of home, you can put down motor expenses, telephone expenses. There's lots of things we could discuss. This isn't for today's podcast. I think there's other ones we've touched upon. If not, there's a form on our website, which goes through the list of the expenses you can claim or your fellow partners will have a copy of it and they can, you know, just keep a note of the things that you spend because they will get claimed against your profits and effectively reduce your tax bill slightly at the end of the year. The other thing to be aware of is, again, only relevant for those in the NHS pension scheme, is that at the end of the financial year, along with your GP partners, you will also have to complete a type one certificate. Now, I do not know anybody that does this themselves, so your accountant will do this for you, but just be aware of it. And as Jenny said earlier on, even if you're one of those individuals where they're not taking your pension contributions correctly, when we do the accounts, we will always put aside a provision or an estimate of what we think that deduction should have been. Then, of course, in the following February, when we actually prepare the superan certificate, we will be able to know what the amount should be deducted. So we'll be able to provide you with the form and then hopefully PCSE get their act together and they deduct the amount and everything gets sorted with your record. But just be aware, this is something new that you will have to complete. You didn't yeah. have to do it before. No, absolutely. And I think as well, it's so important to make sure you're correctly on PCSE's portal because what I have is we are completing pension certificates because we know you're a partner. But what happens is if PCSE don't have a record of you being on a partner, they just reject the forms and Mm. nothing happens. So the real key that I would say is just really make sure that you are correctly on PCC's portal and linked as a partner to the practice because it has a knock-on impact. Not only does superannuate not get deducted, they reject pension forms. That means your pension record isn't correct. Yeah. And that's not a position you want to be in, especially because the amount you're contributing is so much. You certainly don't want your record to be understated. And then I think finally, we'll just look at potentially what the risks might be, because unfortunately, there are always going to be some risks. That's the thing, Katie. I think when you talk to partners, they're very, you know, practices that have decided they want to make their practice manager or nurse a partner. They're really keen. But I sometimes then get the call from the practice manager saying, oh, I'm just not sure, you know, they know what their salary is. They've got this guaranteed income. So I always kind of sort of just touch on some, like you said, some of the risks. And I suppose one of the risks is, you know, 
we can do profit projections and we can say this is based on profits of this, this is what we expect your profit to be. But profits can go down, they can go up, they can go down. So obviously, when you are an employee on the payroll, you get a salary, which is a guaranteed salary. Obviously, as a partner, your profit will depend on what the profits of the practice are. So, you know, profits go up, profits go down. So that is obviously a risk that you're taking. Yeah. And again, we mentioned it earlier, but it's really important that you do ensure you have a partnership agreement, whether you create a new partnership agreement when your incoming partner comes in, or you just have an addendum to a current one that you've got. It's really important that you put in clearly one, how the final pay control charge could be charged to the individual or the practice, making sure it's noted who's liable, but secondly, how the profits will be shared. So the example we gave earlier about having a fixed share, I had a practice once, they had a fixed share and then they shared the profits in a ratio of how their sessions effectively. But if they made a loss, which they never anticipated would happen, they shared in any losses equally. So again, it was a strange way of wording it, but it was worded that way. And I did pick it up when I reviewed the agreement, but their argument was sort of, oh, we'll never make a loss. And I thought, okay, this practice had unfortunately a rather difficult and challenging year. As many of us know, in the last couple of years, it's been really tough for practices. And once the partners, so two doctors and a practice manager, had allocated their fixed share, there was actually a negative. There was a share of the loss. And in that situation, they shared the loss equally. So the practice manager partner in this situation, she was the smallest profit fixed share anyway, but she got an equal share of the loss. Oh, wow, Katie. Gosh. Now, I will stress, the loss was very small. We're not talking big numbers here, but it came as a bit of a shock, but it was in the partnership agreement and that is how it had to be calculated. So I would say, please do be aware that even if you think, oh, this will never happen, it can happen. It is a risk. I know it's unlikely. And that's why genuinely fixed share setups aren't the best, but you know, just something to be aware of. But in general, just make sure your partnership agreement is there is reviewed by, you know, your accountant can review the financial bits of it. You know, there are medical specialist lawyers out there who are aware of the usual things that get written into partnership agreements, especially if you have non-clinical partners. And just to be aware that as partners, you are all jointly liable. So just to be aware of that, you do need to consider that. But again, this will come up in your partnership agreement. So it's really important that you have one. It's not something that is nice when it happens, but there are often, well, I say often, but there are disputes that happen within partnerships. And it's not the same as leaving a practice when you're an employee, you just leave, hand in your notice and leave. When you're a partner, you don't just walk out, you need to give your notice and it will all be deemed in the terms of the partnership agreement. So it is important that you do have that watertight. Yeah, Um, partnership agreement is supposed to be protecting all the individuals. So yeah, absolutely. And I think, well, Katie, you and I know we've got partnerships that have been in partnership for years and still don't have an agreement. So I think as a non-clinical partner, you want to just make sure that you're on the partnership agreement because like you said, it sort of protects everybody and sets out exactly what the agreement is. We're getting towards the end of this podcast. I think one of the final points that I've also been asked when practices are taken on non-clinical partners is if the practice, the partnership own the building, can a non-clinical partner buy into the building? And yes, 
The answer is yes, absolutely. You are a partner in the practice, just like the GPs are a partner. So if the partners own the building and they give you an opportunity to buy in, then you can buy into the building. Obviously, what happens is property has to be valued. You'd get a share of the notional rent. And then obviously you would take out a loan and then you've got the mortgage interest and the mortgage loan repayments to pay. With any new partner that's buying into property, I always sort of suggest that they have a chat with me. I can do sort of figures. You know, we can all do figures and numbers just to kind of say, well, what does this actually mean? I.e., what's the cost for you to buy into the building? And then all I suppose the discussion is, you know, what ratio do you own the building in? So I've got some practices where they may all do different sessions, but they own the building equally. So you just then have to decide. So just because you're on a lower profit share, so maybe a GP, doesn't mean you know, you can't buy into the building as an equal partner if that's how it's held. I would say the norm when it comes to property is that an individual will buy in as a partner exits the practice. That That's the norm. So when that happens, let's say you've got four property owners, four equal, they all own 25% of the property. Partner A leaves and we've got a new partner joining. The new partner is effectively buying partner A's share. So the other three individuals who currently own aren't affected. The one thing to be aware of, and this is really more important for the current owners, is if there are four of you and you own the building and you take on a new partner and that new partner buys in, you become five owners. You revalue the building. If that building has gone up considerably in value, you're effectively selling you as a current owner are effectively selling a little bit of your current share to the new individual. Instead of owning 25%, you now own 20%. You've sold your 5%. So to be aware that if the value of the property has gone up between when you purchased it and now you're selling this little bit, you could potentially have capital gains tax to pay on that. It's just the only thing to be aware of. Not saying you shouldn't have a partner buying in, but again, come to your accountant, Jenny or myself or one of the other partners here, and we'll be able to advise you if there could potentially be any capital gains implications. Yeah, no, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, a practice manager or nurse becoming a partner, you are a partner in the same way that a GP is. I think the only real difference is how you will actually share profits, but everything else will be similar in terms of responsibility, liabilities, doing tax returns, pension certificates. It's all exactly the same. So hopefully that's given you all a bit more information, whether you are listening as a partner thinking of introducing somebody to your practice or a practice manager or a nurse yourself. And again, if you do have any questions or you'd like some projections to be prepared, please don't hesitate to get in touch. And again, thank you so much for everyone who's been listening and giving us our feedback. It's been great so far. We're really glad to hear that you're enjoying. So please continue to like and subscribe and hopefully we'll catch you again for our next podcast. You have been listening to RBP's Accountancy on Prescription podcast. For any updates, please visit www.rbp.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at RBPCA. The contents of this podcast is for general guidance and informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of advice. The information provided by RBP is of a general nature. Appropriate and tailored advice or independent research should be obtained before making any decisions. RBP does not accept any liability for any loss or damage which is incurred from you acting or not acting as a result of listening to Accountancy on Prescription.